Welcome to NatSec Tech, a podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I'm Jean Meserve. SCSP has a mission to make sure the U.S. is positioned and organized to win the global technology competition, which will determine the nation's economic and geopolitical future. With me for this episode is Representative Mac Thornberry, who spent 26 years in Congress as a Republican representing the 13th District in Texas. During his tenure on the Hill, Representative Thornberry served as chairman of the Armed Services Committee and as a member of the House Intelligence Committee. And he's a member of the Board of Advisors of the Special Competitive Studies Project. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Jean. I appreciate being here. On the very first page of SCSP's report, Mid-Decade Challenges to National Competitiveness, you are mentioned for your commitment to connecting big national security ideas to the interests of the American people. Explain. Well, I became concerned uh, that our national leadership, including me when I was in Congress, did not do as well as we should in connecting a strong military with the daily lives of Americans. And and really what I mean is not so much education as reminding people what they already know. And, and any of us who had a little study of the 20th century know that we, had, we got drug into World War I, became isolationist, let Europe stew in its own juices. And because of that, and because the similar attitude in Britain and France, the greatest calamity in the history of the human race, as far as number of deaths, World War II, then occurred. And so after World War II, we were so shocked and, and horrified at that, we decided to do things differently. We created the Department of Defense, the CIA, the International Monetary Fund. We did the Marshall Plan. We left troops in Germany and Japan. We did it differently. And the, the last 75 years have been the best time in human history as you measure it by life expectancy, output, uh, uh, number of fewer number of people killed in wars and so forth. So I think we have come to take for granted all of us uh, and the, the privileges we have had in our daily lives, it's not just stuff that happens over there with armies and things. It affects our ability to earn a living, to raise our families. And, and, and we need to be reminded that a strong military is an essential component that allows that to happen. Why do people have to be reminded of that right now? Well, in a democracy, you can get away with something for a while without public support, but you can't get away with it very long. And, and really, that's in, in some ways, that's a crucial battleground. It's in our democracy about what the people will or will not support. And maybe we want to talk about this a little bit more. But if you look at what Russia, China and other competitors are doing uh, in cyber in misinformation and various, uh, they're trying to divide us against each other. And we're helping them, by the way. Because if you can get us to tie our own hands, they win. And, and, and so we need to have a public that remembers our history, that is reminded about what we're doing and why and how it affects their daily life to get their support. So every audience has one question. What's in it for me? How do you make the case that this has a personal impact on them and their families? What's the argument? 
Well, one of the things I did uh, just before COVID hit was to go out of Washington to different cities around the country and try to relate whatever the primary uh, driver of the economy in that city was to what the military did for them. So, for example, I went to Memphis, Tennessee, where cotton shipping is a major industry. And we talked about how is it that you can ship cotton from here to wherever people are making the shirts? It's because freedom of the seas. How does that happen? It's because of the U.S. Navy. I went to New York where financial industry is a big factor. Every transaction on the New York Stock Exchange is timed to a GPS satellite. You start messing with those satellites, you can bring down the the, the stock exchange. And what does that do for our economy? So space uh, and, and protecting protection of space, now we have a new Space Force, is connected to the daily lives of everybody in the financial sector and all of us that have 401ks and, and so forth. So you just go and connect. If you add up oceans, air, cyber, and space, the global commons, which the U.S. military protects, a lot of Americans uh, earn their living in some way connected to those things. So that's a place to start. Those are the arguments you make. Do they seem to resonate with people? Uh, I think that's a key component. But, but I would say there's two other components that are important. One is just safety. You know, we knew this, uh, especially after 9-11, when we all felt kind of under uh, attack by terrorists. Uh, the terrorist threat has not gone away. But if you look at what's happening in Ukraine today, where you have these drones coming, attacking uh, civilians and infrastructure, you know, safety in our neighborhood is also relevant to this argument. And the third component, I would say, is if you look at China, and their system of cameras and monitoring everything their people do online and the social credit system they have where they give you points if you do what the government wants you to do and they take away points if you don't. And those points determine how fast you get into the emergency room, how much you pay for train tickets, whether you can uh, leave the country or not. Uh, and you see that China is exporting that technology to other countries. You get a feel for a fundamental uh, 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 difference that's going on here about using technology to control your people versus technology to to give your people uh, greater greater freedom. That's going so it's not it's jobs. It's safety, but it's also the fundamental nature of our society that is uh, going on here with with military strength and this competition, especially with China, but but obviously others as well. Does the public buy into the argument that we're in some sort of existential struggle with China? Is that on people's radar? Uh, it is, and it's incre- It's a lot more on people's radar now than it was just a few years ago. You know, we've got lots of differences politically in this country, but this is one area where Republicans and Democrats agree that this is a major threat. Not a, you know, not just to some geostrategic thing that you read about in in the papers, but to our daily lives. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen glimpses of that with, with COVID and other things that have happened that remind us how connected all of this stuff is. 
SCSP is about technology, things like quantum computing and 5G. Are people intimidated by that? Do they understand what those technologies are, why they're important, and why they should care? Um, I think, I don't, I don't know that people are intimidated, but a lot of normal folks don't really know why, what, what it means, uh, what quantum computing is, is a great example, or artificial intelligence. They may not know that it is already a part of our daily lives. But I, I do think you can make the case, for example, by quoting Vladimir Putin, who said, the nation that, that uh, leads in AI will rule the world. Uh, she has made similar comments. I think you can make the case uh, now and looking back at history that if you become second or third place in developing key technologies, you're going to be behind in all sorts of ways and threatened in ways. And, and so it, not losing out on these key technologies does get to some of these core issues about how we earn a living, whether we can protect our families and, and our way of life. Do you ever hear from people, my tax dollars shouldn't be paying for the development of these kinds of technologies? This should be something private industry does. After all, tech has all the money in the world. Why aren't they funding this? They, they, the answer is they are. And if you look, if you had a ledger that says, okay, here's what China can do well and here's what we can do well, we both have some advantages. One of our greatest advantages is private industry and the innovation that, that goes on there. The problem is it's just really hard for them to do business with government. And, and so one of the fundamental issues I think the Special Competitive Studies Project is trying to get at is how do you take advantage of these in, of these of the innovation that goes on in America, uh, and how do you bring it to bear in these uh, not just national security but this international competition that we're in? So we we it's our greatest strength, and yet we tie our hands behind our back because we make it too hard to do business with DOD and other other parts of government. We we're trying to make that better. Why do you work so hard to get public buy-in? Well, as I say, in a democracy, you can't continue a policy unless the public supports it. Ultimately, as a you, you can get by for a while, and and you know, and and um, and and maybe you can avoid losing for a while. But to really prevail, uh, you've got to have the people with you. If if again, if you look what's our strengths and weaknesses. Our democratic system is one of our greatest strengths if you get the people behind you, but it can also be one of our greatest weaknesses. And that's the reason you see Russia, China and all their misinformation and cyber uh, uh, attacking. The, the way the um, SS, SCSP study put it is there's a battle going on in cognitive spaces. Uh, and if they can get us to not, for example, take advantage of the innovation that's happening in the private sector, if, if, we, if they can encourage a, kind of an anti-military sentiment in this country, then, man, they're going to benefit tremendously from that. Disinformation is such a sprawling topic, such a hard nut to crack. People have been talking about it for years and years and years, and we still haven't figured out how to address it. Too many Americans believe everything they read, whether it's fact or fiction. 
Does this argument about myths and disinformation strike a chord or not? Uh, it's tricky, and I think you're exactly right, because so much gets labeled. Disagreements on issues get labeled misinformation or disinformation. Uh, and, and so the labels are applied too widely. But, but I have to tell you, my eyes were really opened. Uh, this was about 2014. I was doing town hall meetings in my district, and there was a rumor that started that President Obama was going to use the military to go door to door to confiscate guns from the homes of Texans. And, and then they were going to arrest people and put them in the bottom of abandoned Walmart stores. And, and so I would go to these town hall meetings. And I would try to reason with people and, and say, if, if, if President Obama, do you think the military would do that if they were ordered? Do you think he would start with Texas if he were going to confiscate guns? Walmart stores don't have basements. I mean, you try to and you would still I had people in tears because they believed what they had read in an email rather than uh, logic. And, and, and clear. Well, it comes out a few years later in the papers. I don't know where the rumor started, but Russian bots were clearly pushing that out to as many sites as they as they could. And, and so I, I do think that uh, there is a foreign element here that we may not appreciate. And, and we give them a lot of fodder. You had, there is also, as you know, uh, reporting that that the Russian bots were on both sides of gun control, on both sides of racial uh, issues. And so they want to foment tensions. And we, as I say, make it too easy for them. You've mentioned a couple of times democracy and the importance of having people buy into this because of our system of government. But does that resonate with people or not? What happens is the word democracy gets used as a code word, meaning the, are you for or against Trump's allegations on the last election? And, it, and it's kind of like disinformation. It gets used uh, in, in more of a partisan way. Um, but, but I do worry uh, as a lifelong Republican that we have gotten too far away from what is required of citizens in a democracy. And as I mentioned, it's, it can be our greatest strength or it can be our most significant weakness. A lot of the things that China does, they do by compulsion. We have to do it voluntarily. And that citizens in a free society who are willing to put up with the hassles of trying to sell their product to the Department of Defense or young men and women who voluntarily uh, serve in the military. You know, these are issues that you don't have in, in China. Uh, we're better off because of it, but we can't take for granted um, that we will always have what we need to compete if we don't foster those uh, kind of basic elements of, of citizenship, reminding about our history. What are the responsive, not just the privileges of citizenship, but the responsibilities, you know, things like that. You were a member of Congress for a long time, and many of the recommendations of SCSP will require Congress to do something. Is Congress capable of doing anything, in your opinion? Uh, in national security, yes. And, and I would say one of the untold stories, and I think it's been 61 straight years that there has been a defense authorization bill that has become law. 
under presidents of both parties, Congress is controlled by both parties. And, and as I mentioned, the, 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 the threat from China is one area where you have Republicans and Democrats basically in, in total agreement. Congress can act in, in national security. And, and what's incredibly impressive, to, among other things, about the Competitive Studies Project is they've been working with hundreds of experts all across the political spectrum in think tanks and universities and former government folks contributing to this. So it's not a conservative or liberal or, you know, how, whatever label you want to put on it prescription. It's, it's really across the spectrum. And, and I think Congress will take these recommendations seriously. You don't think they're going to be distracted by the issue du jour, the scandal du jour? No, it's it's always a problem, uh, no question. And and they want, and I suspect Congress will not do everything that uh, is is recommended. But but I do think there's an increased sense of urgency that we can't just sit here and twiddle our thumbs and get our act together because China is certainly not. Uh, Ukraine helped remind us about some of the stakes and, and what uh, adversaries are capable of. And, and so that's pretty hard to, to walk away from if you are charged with doing the people's business. I'm wondering if your effort to educate the public about SCSP's work is part of an effort to build a public constituency that understands and cares. Well, I, I think that is help. It is helpful to have more people care, more opinion leaders uh, asking questions. Okay, what are you doing about uh, keeping up with the Chinese and quantum computing or whatever the subject is? You know, the more of that, uh, I, I want to say buzz, but the more of that discussion you can have, it helps get it on Congress's radar. And, and back to the democracy point, as a member of Congress, I had to listen to what my people cared about. I mean, that, that's a, the a job of a representative. So I do think uh, with these experts that are contributing to this project, uh, media attention that comes to some of the recommendations and the urgency that comes from it, I think that can help elevate these issues on the radar screen of both Congress and the administration. I asked you earlier about whether the public understood these technologies. So let me ask you now about Congress and whether they understand them. We've both seen clips where members don't even understand the basics of social media platforms. So do they get this stuff or not? Oh, some do and some don't. Uh, you know, there's no question. Would you say most do or most don't? Well, it depends on what we're talking about. Most members of Congress uh, do not understand the, the uh, uh, details of uh, quantum, for example. And it's complicated for me to understand, and I'm not saying I do, by the way. Um, but, but, but I think, but I, I would say this, in every subject, there are leaders in Congress who dive in and understand it better than their colleagues, and their colleagues rely on them on those issues. And certainly for military connected technologies, there are some folks, and a lot of them are younger than average, who understand these things better and, and 
and their colleagues look to them for guidance. And, and they can be the influential uh, leaders here. And we've seen that, by the way, with the, the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. A lot of members of Congress didn't really understand it, but great work was done, report came out, a few leaders helped to implement a number of those recommendations over uh, bills over several years. And I think that can happen here too. We have a very divided country, a very divided Congress. Do you truly think that these kinds of issues can help unite or build bridges between these extremes? Mm, I, I, I don't necessarily think that we can agree, agree on uh, technology competition with China, and that's going to lead to agreement on taxes and health care. I don't think the it works that way. But I do think there are some areas where Republicans and Democrats on the Hill can agree and work together and get some things done. And back to the point we were talking about a while ago, the more you have the country paying attention, at least asking questions about it, then the more likely it is that that's going to be the case. Congress recently passed legislation to encourage production of microchips here in the U.S. What else do you think is potentially something that's going to move fairly quickly that's on the SESP agenda? Well, I think one of the things you and I referenced a while ago, there is some of the greatest strengths we have are the tech industry and uh, the financial community investment. There will never be enough taxpayer money to pay for everything we need to compete with China, Russia, Iran, and, and the rest. So we need to get those investors where they're willing to put their money in to these tech companies uh, who will make things that will make our soldiers safer, you know, just to put it simplistically. So it's it, we just need to remove some of the shackles, the discouragement in the system that makes it hard for investors to ever see a return on investments they make in in these industries. And the same for, you know, I, yesterday I had a conversation with a startup founder who who's doing well on his commercial side he's trying to do business with the department of defense but he says if it they like what i've got but it's going to take two years to get into the next budget cycle before they can really get me some money and i can't pay people just to stay there for two years so we've got to solve problems like that i think we can and, and it will make a big difference in bringing these tremendous assets of technology and investment to the table uh, on behalf of national security and, and other you know, segments of our economy. So China obviously has some big advantages in this competition. Does the U.S. have some? The U.S. has tremendous advantages. And, and by the way, I, if you add them all up, I wouldn't trade places with China. But uh, where as, as a former uh, head of MI6, the British Intelligence Service said at our Competitive Studies Summit uh, a few weeks ago, where centralization is rewarded, China will do well. Where decentralization is rewarded, will do well. But, but the key question I keep coming back to is, we've got advantages, but can we use them? Can we bring them to the table? Or are we tying our own hands uh, unnecessarily by making it too difficult 
to to contribute to bring tech and finance and 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 young people who want to contribute for example in cyber but have pink hair and may not want to be members of the military so so bringing to bear our resources is I think our biggest challenge. So if bringing to bear our resources is our biggest challenge, how do we do it? Do you have any clues? Well, we need to loosen up a little bit. Uh, and, and you know, part of the problem is we'll have somebody who does something wrong and we'll make a new law uh, that says nobody can ever do this again. And so it deters people. It, it, it invites excessive caution. We need to be willing to take some risks. We need to be willing to take some risks with with people. Not everybody is going to look like your prototypical Marine, but but a lot of people can contribute in ways to national security, as I say, cyberspace, some of these other technologies. So opening up the aperture a little bit, but but I, I, I go back to a fundamental point. Uh, again, this was made uh, at our competitive studies project. We need to have a common narrative. In other words, a story that we believe uh, that uh, can contribute to bringing us together in a common effort. And that's where I get back to what you and I were talking about. We need to be reminded that strength deters aggression. And, and our daily lives depend upon military strength and engagement in the world. And we're, we're challenged like we've never been before in technology in some of these areas. And we need to work together to, to overcome them. We can, uh, but it's that kind of common narrative that helps us bring these diverse resources from all over our society voluntarily to contribute to making this country more secure. Congressman Mac Thornberry, thanks so much for joining us for NetSec Tech this week. I appreciate it. And thanks to the audience for joining us and listening in. I'm Jean Mazur. We'll be back in two weeks with another edition of NetSec Tech.